Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for unlocking the door so I could come in. <laughs> You're always welcome here. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I've always felt welcome here, though sometimes I wonder. Um, as we uh, go on in uh, Fukunza Zengi, there's a section towards the end where it says, in addition, the bringing about of enlightenment by the opportunity provided by a finger, a banner, a needle, a mallet, or a power tool <laughs> uh, cannot be fully understood by discriminative thinking. <laughs> you don't have to read it. Uh, we're not going to study that. I'm just, uh, this is this. This is going to be the session of the power tool, I think. It seems that uh, they're putting a, a metal flashing, they're screwing down a metal flashing on the uh, roof of a shed over there. So I'll just have to kind of fit my words in between the out of electronic noise. So I hope you're all doing well. To, uh, let me move out of this uh, so I can see who's in the, the sitting here is really strong. Uh, just, it's very quiet. Uh, there's a lot of clarity and uh, I wanted to go back and, and before we press on, uh, just a little more history, which came to me as I was um, reading and thinking. So uh, it's true that the uh, Fukan Zazengi went through uh, a continuous editing and revision process over the course of Dogen's life. Uh, it seems that he did put forward his first draft very soon after returning from China. And at that point, he was, uh, he was, he sort of set up shop at Keninji, uh, which I think was a Rinzai monastery in, uh, in or around Kyoto. And uh, he was just forming his Sangha. So this was really, when he says a universal recommendation, it was really, uh, largely for a broad community, which included some monastics, but also included quite a number of lay people. And uh, in that time, which was the, uh, the early part of the Kamakura era, uh, there were three popular movements that had arisen in Buddhism. Uh, and they, they rose in response to uh, a kind of elite monasticism uh, that was also associated with the ruling and military uh, strata of society. And those, those three arose pretty much, uh, pretty, pretty much at the same time. You have Shin Buddhism, and the exemplars there were Honen and then 
Shinran, who revised Honen's teachings and created Kyoto Shinshu, uh, and the practice or what what they did uh, was to uh, the fundamental effort was to chant the name of Amida Buddha, uh, which is uh, they would chant Namo Amida Butsu, Namo Amida Butsu, uh, which has been characterized as the Nembutsu. And uh, so that was one large school which still exists, and it's actually Jodo Shinshu is the largest school of Japanese Buddhism. Uh, then you had a second revisionist movement, which was the Nichiren School, uh, which is named after its founder. And the Nichiren School put all their devotion into the Lotus Sutra. And that was often the, what they did was reduced to one phrase, which is Nam Yoho Renge Kyo, which is the name of the Lotus Sutra. And they would chant that. And again, that school is still extant. And the third school that arose at the same time is um, Dogen's uh, proposal of Soto Zen. Uh, and that practice centered on uh, Zazen or Shikantaza as Zazen. And I'll say more about Shikantaza shortly. Um, but in each case, it's interesting that each of these schools offered a very simplified practice that anyone could do. It wasn't contingent on uh, very complex ritual enactments or um, the study of difficult sutras. Uh, it was complex. It was, and there's a, there's a, certainly a, uh, a theological or buddhological basis for them that's pretty evolved. But the practices that were presented to people were quite straightforward and simple, you know, chanting, uh, honoring or invoking Amida Buddha, calling forth the mercy of the Lotus Sutra, and uh, throwing yourself into the house of Buddha with Vikantaza. Anybody could do this. And it's also interesting to me that um, given that these were practices that were, what was radical was that they were practices for lay people, for common people, and they began to decenter uh, Buddhism in Japan. So the traditional centers of the major schools up to that point, which would be uh, Tendai, which is a kind of hybrid, pure land-based uh, practice. You had Kagon Buddhism, which was uh, centered on the Avatamsaka Sutra. And you had Shingon Buddhism, which 
very similar to the Vajrayana or tantric practices that we find in, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. All of those schools were, they built huge monasteries and temples, and they were centered in, uh, in the major power centers, if you will. So you would, they were really centered in, in Nara and Kyoto and Kamakura. Uh, and the centers for these new schools were much more diffuse. And it's also true that given that they were challenging, uh, these new schools were challenging to the uh, kind of the main weight of institutional Buddhism in Japan, um, all of these teachers paid a price. Honen and Shinran and Nichiren all spent portions of their lives in exile. And Dogen, in a sense, you could say, uh, exiled himself uh, after having built a very successful and fully realized uh, Zen monastic center outside of, on the outskirts of Kyoto in 1242-1243, they packed up their whole monastery and moved to the effective wilderness of Echizen province. Uh, you know, just think what that must be like. Think of what it'd be like for us if we felt the pressures of society as such that we had to pack up this whole place and, you know, move to the foothills of the Sierras or something and start, start again. It's really, I, I can only feel that this must have been a very hard and painful decision for, for his monastic community. But the other thing that was different was, the, which comes back to Foucault says that he is the purpose and the function of these schools. What evolved in the major schools of Buddhism was a, a ritual enactment for the sake of basically the preservation of the country or the harmonization of the country. Now, when we think about uh, Buddha's enlightenment. Uh, a verse that comes to mind upon his enlightenment, uh, Buddha said something like, now I am awake together with all beings. But in Japanese Buddhism, uh, to an extent, to a large extent, because the practice was in the hands of the ruling elites, uh, that practice became quite politicized. That what was seen as the purpose of the practice was the 
preservation of the nation. And I think that these other schools, the Shin Buddhism, Nichiren, and Dogen Zen, they didn't contradict that exactly. However, their emphasis was elsewhere. Their emphasis was more on what the Buddha was proposing when he said, now I am awakened together with all beings. Uh, it was all beings, not just uh, those who were uh, constituting the national or political entity of, of Japan. Uh, and it wasn't for the sake of that entity, it was for the sake of all beings. So, um, I think that common to all these schools is uh, a faith vision, a vision of the kindness and the mercy of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Uh, the word uh, that appears in Japanese is for mercy is ji. And I recognize that this idea of the ideas of faith, the ideas of mercy, may not be entirely comfortable for uh, to us as, as modern uh, Buddhist, Western Buddhist practitioners. Uh, some of us, at least, have had our bellies full of faith from childhood. And that faith seemed quite empty to us. But I think that what's really, what I would encourage, what I try to work with myself is to really open that door. Open that door of faith. And as Dogen says um, in Shobu uh, Kenzo Zenki, uh, just throw yourself into the house of Buddha. That's an act of faith throw yourself into the house of Buddha, or to fall back into the arms of Buddha in faith that you will be caught and held and protected. I feel like that's what we're doing, whether we know it or not. That is actually the, the practice of uh, the practice realization is just to actualize our faith by letting go, letting go and falling back into the arms of Buddha or throwing ourselves through the door into that space in which we don't know what is waiting for us. But we just do it. 
And, you know, the great thing is actually we do it together. It's like, in picture, you know, a whole bunch of us just kind of throwing ourselves into that, into that big room. So, um, I want to come back to the text. We read this part yesterday and I'll go on. Fukan Sazemi begins with four questions. Um, for some of us, the fear causes. Um, that's Jewish, four questions. Um, the way is basically perfect and untrammeled. Sorry, perfect and all pervading. Question one, how can it be contingent upon practice and realization? And as we said, uh, I think that's syntactically what, what he's doing there is saying, how could it be contingent upon practice and realization as two things? As as instead instead what he's saying is it can only be contingent on practice realization as one as one thing as shusho ito one awakening. The next set is the Dharma vehicle is free and untrammeled. Uh, and so the question is, what need is there for concentrated effort? So what need is there for concentrated effort is the, the fundamental question that arises uh, in contrast to the first question. Uh, and this was, as I said, this was Dogen's, the existential question that arose to him at the age of 14 when he was at Mount Hiei, uh, because the doctrine of original enlightenment was teaching that uh, the way is perfect and all-pervading, and yet we're supposed to practice. Well, why? And this, this whole, the whole rest of the text, and actually the whole rest of Dokken's uh, work is an answer and you know is is a way of answering that question what need is there for concentrated effort third proposition and question is the whole body is far beyond the world's dust who could believe in a means to brush it clean and as i said without uh, going over it again this this is citing uh, a section of the Platform Sutra of Linen, uh, which is uh, the questions or the, the exchange that happened between uh, Shenshu, uh, the fifth ancestor's uh, senior student, and Wineng, uh, the young upstart who actually became the sixth ancestor. Uh, it is never apart from one right where one is. What is the use of going off here and there to practice? That's the fourth question. Uh, there's no need to go off 
here and there to practice. Wherever you are, you can be still, you can reflect, you know, even if, whoops, you okay? Um, even if you do go off uh, here and there to practice, it's still right there, wherever you are. So this is, we cannot, we are swimming in Buddha Dharma. We are immersed in it. Uh, there is no place outside of it. So then he goes on and says, and yet, if there's the slightest discrepancy, the way is as distant as heaven from earth. Uh, if the least like or dislike arises, the mind is lost in confusion. So this, some people recognize, is uh, drawing from uh, the Zen verse of the Shin Shin Mi. wonder, is there enlightenment in the dentist's chair? <laughs> I, let's not close all those windows. Uh, it's not going to work and we want to, we, it's important to keep us ventilated. Uh, I, don't, I don't mind the disturbance really. Um, so in the Shin Shin Ming, says, if there's the slightest discrepancy, the way is as distant from heaven and earth. To realize its manifestation, be neither for nor against. Um, the conflict of likes and dislikes is itself a disease of the mind. Do not dwell in dualities and scrupulously avoid pursuing the way. It's interesting, scrupulously avoid pursuing the way. If there is the least like or dislike, the mind is lost in confusion. So that's interesting. Uh, What's the other poem? Uh, I noticed people looking for it. Yeah, you don't have it. Right, you, you don't have it. Right, thank you. It's a Shin Shin Ming. Um, and we'll come back to this because this is a point that Doyen makes, again, throughout his work, scrupulously avoid pursuing the way. The way isn't something that can be pursued. The way is just right here. If you turn the way into an object, you miss it. That's why 
we speak of practice realization. And I think that one way to think about this question uh, or the, the notion of the slightest discrepancy, uh, to me, this discrepancy is the illusory gap that we necessarily uh, or we habitually place between practice and realization. It's the it's the the word and that's the gap. If you take it out, you have practice realization. There's no gap. But when you say practice and realization, again, as I said, you're making two things of it. And the fact of the matter is that in our practice, each of us, each of us contends with this. We're, we can be pulled in these different directions, or sometimes it seems like we're pulled in two directions at once. The direction uh, of perception or the idea that everything is enlightenment, so there is no need for practice. And then the other, the other issue of seeking the goal of enlightenment. And that tension can pull us apart. Dogen throughout this whole text and through again throughout his work, he's saying we don't need this, but we have to come to it ourselves. The next section uh, we read it. You have it, I think. Suppose one gains pride of understanding and inflates one's own enlightenment, glimpsing the wisdom that runs through all things, attaining the way and clarifying the mind, raising an aspiration to escalate the very stuff, very sky. Really love that expression, escalate the very sky. Uh, that means you drive your Cadillac there. <laughs> um, one is making initial partial excursions about the frontiers, but is still somewhat deficient in the vital way of total emancipation. So, in a sense, this is a, this is a, actually it's a kind of in affirmation that you may have some understanding. It's not that there's no understanding. It's not that enlightenment is, is an empty cloud or a phantom. Uh, you may have some understanding from moments to moments. Any of us or all of us may have some experience of oneness. It's really not that unusual. 
sometimes it happens and we don't notice or we notice it only in retrospect. So you may actually have a glimpse of the wisdom that runs through all things. Uh, but that's not the point. Um, in the next paragraph, let me read the next paragraph. Um, because I think this, this is where he's trying to go. Um, need I mention the Buddha? who was possessed of inborn knowledge. The influence of his six years of upright sitting is noticeable still. Or Bodhidharma's transmission of the mind seal, the fame of his nine years of wall sitting is celebrated to this day. Since this was the case with the saints of old, how can we today dispense with negotiation of the way? So for the Buddha, um, Buddha says, was possessed of inborn knowledge. There's a, there's a story in the Buddha's life as a child. Uh, as a child, he is uh, sitting underneath a rose apple tree. And in that moment, he has he has an awakening experience. He has an experience of that fundamental oneness. Uh, very, very powerful. It just gets, it gets, it gets just seemingly a, a, seeming a brief moment of uh, acknowledgement in the, in the Pali Suttas. But it was there. And so, at the point of his enlightenment, after sitting under the bow tree, it's really that he wasn't coming to something new, he was returning to something that was already available, had already been available to him because it was inborn, because the Buddha nature is inborn for all of us. And yet, he practiced. As for Bodhinarma, uh, Bodhinarma, who was the putative founder of our Zen lineage, you can read the story of his awakening uh, in the Denkaroku. Uh, uh, and he had an awakening experience with his teacher, Prajantara. And interestingly, uh, there's a lot of evidence that Prajantara was a woman. That's a, something we can discuss at another time, but, uh, you know, it's, at least there's one suspected woman in our official Zen lineage. Uh, of course, there are many who are teachers, but Bodhidharma was awakened in relationship to Prajnatara. But it was after that, that he did his nine years of wall sitting. 
As Dogen says, since this is the case with the saints of old, how can we today dispense with negotiation of the way? So to come back to the point, uh, what Dogen, I think, is saying is that even the Buddha and Bodhidharma continued to work with themselves, continued to practice after their great awakening. So they were not trying to accomplish something or accomplish something further. Uh, as I said yesterday, um, what you could think of them doing was to plow their practice back into the soil of life, back into the soil of their very lives and the lives of those around them. Uh, they were returning their awakening to enrich the ground of being. This is how we practice, I believe. We look at the founding of Buddhism in Japan. Uh, one of the narratives is that it was uh, it was brought from Korea to Japan by Prince uh, Shotoku in uh, the sixth century, early sixth century Japan, and uh, there's. There's a quotation from Prince Shotoku, uh, which I've been trying to track down for years. I never have tracked it down, but uh, I learned it from Bernie Glassman. Uh, anyway, Prince Shotoku was said to have said, said to have said to have said, yes, uh, that you can measure the quality of one's enlightenment by the depth of their service. So this is what we're doing when we're practicing. Uh, we may be, our service may be imperceptible, and yet it has an effect. Our service also may be quite perceptible and visible, and it has an effect. So uh, it's not that there is no enlightenment. It's not that enlightenment isn't important. It's just, it's not the purpose of our practice. Sojin would often say, uh, we practice for the sake of practice. And yet, there is an effect of our practice. To practice for the sake of practice is to practice selflessly. And when we do that, when we, we train ourselves in unself-centeredness, 
in selflessness, we have all kinds of effects on the world around us, on the people around us, immediately and even at a distance. And from that basis, there are other things that we can do with our lives as well. But it's all, all those things proceed from the house of Buddha. So the next proposition, the next section of, of it is um, is really a pivotal part of of Fukunta uh, Zenji, and it's it's the place where it makes its turn into the actual uh, nuts and bolts zazen instruction. So Dogen says, you should therefore cease from practice based on intellectual understanding, pursuing words and following after speech, and learn the backward step that turns your light inwardly to illuminate yourself. One of the commentaries of the Fukan Zazengi, uh, uh, dating back to the 18th century, I think, says, in general, the sickness of studying the way is brought about by speculation arising from choosing words and phrases. This, in other words, is the source of all delusion. So this, the sickness of studying the way is where we get hung up on uh, a self-centered, kind of practice, a pride that we take in being Buddhists or being Zen students, being something special. Uh, and we back that up with all kinds of words and phrases and texts and things mastered. And uh, this is the source of all delusions. Rather, can we set these aside and um, learn the backward step that turns your light inwardly? So I just want to read you a few citations of that expression. And maybe that's where, that's where I'll stop after I read these things. Um, because uh, the next oh, Thursday, uh, I want to talk, let's go into detail about the next, the next phrase, like uh, where he says, what does he read to? Body and mind of themselves will drop away if you, and your original face will be manifest. If you want to attain suchness, you should practice suchness without delay. So I want to talk about, uh, the next talk, I want to talk about dropping away, dropping body and mind, and suchness. But to go back to the backward step that turns your light inwardly, this goes, you can read uh, this instruction throughout the history of Zen. 
So in the ninth century, uh, Master Linshi said, uh, you must right now turn your light around and shine it on yourself. Not go seeking somewhere else. Then you will understand that in body and mind, you are no different from the ancestors and Buddhas. And there is nothing to do. This is, this is interesting coming from Linchi, who is, you know, the really principal figure. I mean, they named the school after him. His name in Japan is Rinzai. Uh, and Rinzai is marked for doing something, right? Pursuing your calling. But here he says, you'll understand that in body and mind, you are no different from the ancestors and Buddhas, and that there's nothing to do. Uh, Master Furong Dokai in the uh, 11th century says, when you get here, turn the light around to shine back. Let go of your hands and accept it. These next three are around the same time. Yuan Wu, who was one of the uh, editors and commentators of the Blue uh, Record, said, the most important thing is for people of great faculties and sharp wisdom to turn the light of mind around and shine back and clearly awaken to this mind before a single thought is born. Now that's, that's something I think we come back to. What is this, what is this mind before a single thought is born? And it's impossible to get your mind around that mind. And finally, uh, Master Hongju, uh, who wrote a series of zazen instructions, meditation instructions that are, that are collected in book uh, Cultivating the Empty Field, which is a wonderful book. He said, and he was in, he was in uh, Rujing's lineage, and therefore in Dogen's language, lineage. He said, take the backward step and directly reach the middle of the circle from where the light issues forth. So all of these to me are just beautiful versions, beautiful ways of expressing uh, the encouragement to take the backward step and shine the light inward. So with that, I think I'm going to end for today and uh, let's see if you have some comments or questions. You can take them from the room and people who are uh, out there in Zoom land can raise your digital hand. I will look for that and call on you. So, uh, yes, Ryushin.
this was a few points back. Yeah. So I hope I remember what I wanted to say. Seems like the way you were talking about enlightenment for a while, there sounds like something personal that we achieve through our practice. But my understanding and my understanding of Dogen's teaching on enlightenment is that enlightenment is always present. Enlightenment realizes enlightenment, so to speak, mm -hmm. and that it's not something that we have to achieve, we manifest it through our practice. And that's really the root of Dogen's faith, is that understanding that enlightenment, if you will, Buddha nature is always present and active, but it's not something outside of ourselves that we're aiming for. We're more getting out of the way so it can manifest. Could you comment on that? Yes. I believe that that is, that is the essence of his teaching. I think at the same time, you know, in that section that I was reading where um, excuse me just a second. Where he talks about, um, you may have a, a glimpse of the wisdom that flows through all things. That is, I don't think that Dogen denies the element of personal agency. He right. requires it. That's why we practice it. Right. Exactly. So, Things happen, as I said, things happen, but that's not the point. The point is for all things to wake up together and to recognize that they are already woken up together. Uh, and part of, I think, what we, what we may glimpse is a piece of that. that and it's, to me, I often go back to thinking about music. That the music is there if you're playing in a band or you're playing in an orchestra. Um, the whole, all of those players together are making this wonderful reality. And everyone has a responsibility within it, but no one of them is the entirety, but without any one of them, something is missing. That, I think that's a way of, uh, that I would express what, what you're pointing to, Dogen yeah, saying. Yeah, I, I have a lot of resonance, yeah. no pun intended, I have a lot of resonance with, with that analogy. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, in a way, not so much a glimpse, but it's connecting with the experience. Right. And it's also, the thing is, the glimpse is not what's important. This is what we talked about a little yesterday. Um, enlightenment is an activity. Practice is an activity. It's not a thing. It's not a perception. It's not a picture. It's 
something that this is why Master Bauche was fainting. Uh, and I think this is what we come to as we as we proceed in the uh, in Fugatsu Zemi. So thank you. Thank you. Um, Peter. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Hosan. Yeah. Um, I'm realizing that I'm sort of stuck on the word backwards. And I wondered if you could comment on the use of that word in connection with your, you know, based on your own experience of trying to kind of relate to what's being suggested here. I think what's being suggested by the word, yes. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, Peter is looking at the word backward, the backward step, and was asking what I, what I thought about that. I think that uh, our usual way uh, is to see ourselves as the center that moves towards things and that the things that we want to perceive are out there. And um, I'm trying to remember the, the first uh, the proposition in Genjo Koan, uh, the last lines basically that things come forward and realize themselves. Mm. So when they come forward and realize themselves, uh, it's like they're coming into us. Uh, there's no separation between us and them. So the backward step is just a reflective one to recognize, I think, that there is nothing, that everything, everything that we are complete and that everything that we perceive, in a sense, is within us. And so that's a whole other very complex uh, dharma point. Uh, so we should look at ourselves as the as the source of of all that we encounter. That's it's just. But I think that also you could just say, say, uh, we're talking about. I was talking about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, to take the backward step is to read the other side of the page. Uh. If that makes sense. Yeah, thank you. Ross. Uh, uh, with regard to turning the light inward, um, I was thinking of the story of Lomtan's awakening where a teacher held up the light for him to take on it, his way out, and he blew it out. So my sense is that it was dark. Could you say a little something about the light and dark and the play between? Uh, how they both inform our life? Sure. I mean, I think they're used, um, you know, there's one characterization where, you know, well, uh, the dark makes all forms one. In brightness, dualistic distinctions are apparent.
but, but there's also uh, there's also a lot of imagery of light as um, the kind of generative energy, which so I think those are just two different ways of looking at at light in, in dark. One can wake up to the oneness of things, and one can wake up to the duality of things, the myriad things, and somehow another holding those two images or uh, senses of light and dark maybe is the way that uh, the first to. I think I think as part of it, I think the other thing that many of us will experience in the course of this week as we get deeper into meditation what we see is the luminosity of everything that you know it's just like all of a sudden walk down the streets and you know just the dampness on the on the pavement is alive and glowing or the i remember once she um just lying down during the break on the lawn and just like wow there's a whole big bright world in here <laughs> so that's that's the other that's that's the other side of light yeah thank you thank you um i'm gonna have to Let's try to be succinct. I see Judy and then uh, Paolo, is it? And uh, uh, Gary. So Judy, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Hosan. Um, this discussion just now about light, uh, I was noticing for myself that the falling back uh, into the arms of Buddha actually feels like resting in the womb of darkness, uh, where birth and death are coexistent. And um, you've often spoken about uh, Sojin offering you the teaching of things falling apart. So I'm wondering um, how this uh, connects to this teaching. I think even if things fall apart, you're ultimately safe. It's ultimately okay, and things will fall apart. We're, we're all going to die. And that's kind of like, I don't think we can go much further in falling apart than that. And then our bodies will dissolve. But in our dying, as we die, we may be really scared. It may be really painful. It may be hard. And it may be none of those things. It may be just, ah, just a relief to let go. And when, it, when that moment finally comes, we'll be safe. I have faith in that. I guess I'm wondering what you mean by safe, because you've more often spoken of being careful than being safe. I have? Yeah, you, you told me once being careful is being full of care. Oh, okay. Uh, 
Is that what you mean now by safe? No. Mm -hmm. So what do you mean? I mean that everything, what happens is fundamentally okay. This is really hard. Uh, it's, it's hard. And I, the words come easily. Uh, but I don't always feel that way. But I do have faith that that is the case. You know, I, I'll say I've been, uh, I've had experiences that were close to death a number of times. And in each time, in those moments, it was okay, which had nothing to do with my anticipatory fear of it. But, so everything's included? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, hello? Thank you, Hassan. Um, I want to use my words to try to understand this thing that um, is beyond, I think, um, the conception of, of words, if that makes any sense. Um, I'm trying to make sense of it. We'll just say it. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, high, they're, they're highly literary people, right, who arrive at this point where the conclusion is don't rely on, on words. And it reminds me almost of the, 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 the technique in poetry of learning all the rules so that you learn where and, 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 and how to break them. Sure. Um, is it really as straightforward as that? Is it's no. not that we give we don't give up learning and we don't give up knowledge, but we understand its limitations and that it's merely pointing at something. That's, and that thing itself that, is what is vital. That's correct. I mean, you know, here we are talking about Dogen. Who could be more who could be more adept at words uh, than Dogen? Uh, and he never disparaged words uh, himself. And I wasn't necessarily advocating that in the sense, but I think that this, to me, what, what he's teaching always is the transparency of our words, the transparency of our thoughts, the transparency of our perceptions, they're, all of them are completely expressions of Buddha reality. At the same time, we're invited to see through them. So, uh, enjoy your words and don't believe everything you think. So Gary, you have the last word, I think. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I I feel you know kind of similar to what Judy was saying that uh, the backward step is 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 like not really physically stepping backwards but receding receding into the Buddha or receding into what's happening. Yeah, I think that that's I think that that's right. 
What do you think? Yeah. That, and I, I also think, you know, it's, there's an, of course, as, as we're learning over and over again, there's another way to, uh, another way to think about it is that, um, The thought is just has just slipped my mind. Say what you said again. No, I just think that it's it's this receding, not so much a physical step, but I think sometimes it can be a physical step, and sometimes it can just be receding. But um, no, I think it's just it's it's taking the time to to reflect. Uh, it's uh, and oh, I know what I was going to say uh, that you could say as others have characterized that uh, a lot of meditation practice is about going inward and you know concentrating on a mental object i don't think that's what he's talking about i think he's talking about uh, looking at what looking at the going inward taking the backward step and reflecting on the entire flow of perception and sensation that you're experiencing and recognizing that it's not outside. It's, you know, it's not outside and it's not inside. So I think we need to stop there. Uh, thank you. And we'll continue. Uh, Jerry, as I said, Jerry will get to talk tomorrow and then uh, we'll continue and we'll talk about dropping body and mind on uh, Thursday, by which point everybody will have dropped their body and mind, of course, so we won't need to say anything. <laughs>